Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, down through chapter 9, verse 1. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be there we go. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some are standing here, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, we read that your word is truth, and we know that to be true. We've also read the, the prayer of your son, who asked that you would sanctify us by that truth. So that is our prayer this morning. That is our proclamation this morning, that your Word is truth. Sanctify us by your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name, the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. For those of you who have lived in or visited the great state of Texas, you're probably familiar with the Texan pride that, that permeates the hearts and minds of most citizens that you interact with there. Our family called Texas home for five years while I was in seminary, and it didn't take long for us to pick up on the fact that Texans are proud to be Texans. Being from Georgia, I had experienced state pride, but what I was seeing in Texas was next level. It was a uniform pride that spanned all demographics, so whether you were black or white, poor or rich, man or woman, it did not matter. If you were from Texas, chances were really good that you were proud to say you were Texan. And this baffled me. I mean, I, I get it. Uh, Whataburger is really good. The Cowboys are okay. But what's the big deal about Texas? Why are Texans so proud to be Texan? I didn't understand it until we visited San Antonio and went to the Alamo, and I was exposed in that short trip to the history of Texas' fight for independence from Mexico. And I got in a weekend what I assumed most kids get throughout their education in school in Texas. Knowing Pastor Nick was also one who had spent a little bit of time in Texas. I asked him this week if he had any intel on why Texans are proud to be Texans, and he didn't. But he had a friend uh, who had taught Texas history for years and years and years. He's retired now. 
Um, but he confirmed my suspicions that kids in Texas are taught Texas history. He said both fourth grade and seventh grade. Seventh grade is the full year's focus uh, for Texas history. But that's not it. Nick's friend also said that this past April, the State Board of Education decided to expand this focus. This from an article sent by Nick's friend. The board directed its Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, acronym TEX, but T-E-K-S, I kid you not. The board directed them to review work groups to include Texas-specific standards in kindergarten through grade two, grade six, and grade eight, and to keep Texas-specific standards as a focus for grade seven. Even though it's been 180 years since the Battle of the Alamo, many of the people that I met in Texas were so proud to be Texan that you would have thought that they had fought in the battle themselves. You see, even though Texans were defeated at the Battle of the Alamo, this event became a rallying cry for Texas independence. And the fight for independence and the resulting freedom, if that war is won, it changes people. Most Americans embrace the independence that we won from Britain. The independence most of us will celebrate tomorrow with food and family and friends and, and maybe even a fireworks display after the sun goes down. As with Texans, there is some level of independence that just gets baked into our DNA just from living in this country. But how does that independence that we celebrate as Americans, how does that square with the kingdom of God? As Christians, we have at least two citizenships, right? We have an earthly citizenship and a heavenly one. We're picking back up in our, in our summer series this morning that we're calling Upside Down Kingdom. And we're looking at how the kingdom of God is unlike any earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is counterintuitive and is often the opposite of, of what we'd expect or what we are used to. We're taking this summer to look at the sayings and statements of Jesus that often baffled. And, and the passage that we're looking at this morning shows us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom for the dependent. America is called the land of the free, but as we'll see this morning, our desire for independence is not something that is unique to Americans. The very people that Jesus was teaching, including his disciples, they had this nagging urge and desire for independence. No matter our nationality, Jesus shows us that citizens of the kingdom are commanded to a certain dependence upon God. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to take that out and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I have two points this morning, and, and we'll see those in verses 31 through chapter 9, verse 1. And the first point will be the king who models dependence. And the second point will be the king who commands dependence. So the king who models dependence and the king who commands dependence. But before we get to those points, look first at verse 27 of Mark 8. 
chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. See, the first four verses of this passage serve as background for why the kingdom of God, being for dependence, was so utterly shocking. Jesus and the disciples have been doing ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and in leaving Bethsaida, headed north toward Caesarea Philippi. And it's on the way to Caesarea Philippi that, that Mark tells us Jesus asked the disciples both who the people in general say that he is and who the disciples thought that he is. Speaking for the other disciples, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, spoken of in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses, uh, verses 14 to 16, Psalm 2 and, and Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. Peter was identifying Jesus as the God-given leader that was expected to liberate God's people. So let's pause for just a second to think about the significance of this confession in light of where Jesus and the disciples were headed. Jesus and the disciples' destination was a perfect illustration of not only the physical bondage that people were in and, and longed to be freed from, but also the spiritual bondage they were in and should have longed to be freed from. Caesarea Philippi was a ground zero of sorts for idolatry. It had been a center of the worship of Baal. Fast forward a little bit, and the Greek god Pan, and most recently to that time, Caesar Augustus. Commentators note how the city's name had recently been changed from Panius, right, an ob obvious nod to their god Pan, been changed from Panius to Caesarea Philippi by Philip the Tetrarch, who was one of King Herod the Great's sons, and he did this to honor both himself, how humble, right, and Augustus Caesar. The disciples were convinced that Jesus, as the Messiah, would liberate them and their people from the oppressive Roman regime. Their focus was on physical independence, but Jesus' mission was to liberate them from their sin. Jesus was marching into the battleground of spiritual oppression known as Caesarea Philippi as the Messiah who would offer spiritual freedom to everyone who would place their trust in him. So how would the Messiah gain the people their freedom that they so desperately needed? By doing something completely unthinkable as a king, laying down his life for his people. So if the kingdom of God is a kingdom for the dependent, and it is, we see in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to 33, the king who models dependence. Again, that's our first of two points this morning, the king who models dependence. With it fresh in our minds that Peter had rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah who would liberate God's people, look at verse 31 with me. 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So if history has taught us anything, it's that most kings, by nature of their title, take full advantage of their position. As long as they can hold on to that power, most of them are an island, right? They are the definition of independence. They answer to no one and are beholden to no one. The pages of our history books are littered with example after example of what a person with absolute power will do with it. Contrast those kings with King Jesus. Jesus models dependence. Who is he dependent on, and and why does he choose to be dependent? On the heels of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus told them what he, as the Son of Man, must do. Jesus would often refer to himself as the Son of Man, a title that was calling back to the messianic prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Jesus would use this title to confirm his identity as the Messiah who had come both fully God and fully man, but he would also use it when describing his mission. So his identity and his mission. In identifying himself as the Son of Man and teaching about what it was he had come to do, he showed how he would suffer. And we see that in verse 31. In addition to that, we see how he would come again as the judge who will establish God's kingdom. And that's in verse 38. So Jesus, as the Son of Man, was unlike other kings in that he would humbly give his life for those who would trust in him. And after his death, he would rise from the dead, ascend into glory, and come back to judge the world. So we get that that Jesus was unlike other kings in his identity and mission, but again, I ask, how did Jesus model dependency? We'll find the answer to that in verse 33, but first, look at verse 32. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus knows who he is, he knows what he must do, but Peter sharply disagrees with the Messiah's strategy. Look at the text. Verse 32 again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke is a word that we don't use too much anymore. So it might be a little lost on us just how radical Peter's actions toward Jesus were. But Peter was taking Jesus aside to sharply criticize him over his plan. As a brief aside, it's never a good idea to rebuke God. Should be obvious. And yet we see people doing that every day. Friends, when we and the world take issue with God and His plan, God is not the one who needs to be rebuked. We are the ones who need to be rebuked. The most obvious example I can think of at this moment in history is, is the battle raging over the issue of abortion. There are some who would prioritize personal autonomy over human life, and that simply goes against God's plan. God's plan is perfect. Right? The way He has designed His creation is perfect. 
His providential rule and reign are perfect, and yet we regularly take issue with Him in what He has decreed. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I'm simple, and I need to be made wise, so I certainly don't need to be rebuking God. Amen? Peter quickly learned why it's never a good idea to rebuke the Lord. Because Jesus turns it back on him, right? Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not, ha- you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How is it then that, that, that we say Jesus modeled dependency? Because his will was to obey the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus had in mind the concerns of God and was living his life as well as planning to die the substitutionary death in order to show that he was the first and foremost interested in the concerns of God and not merely human concerns like Peter was. Jesus' desire was to continually yield to his heavenly Father. Listen to Jesus' words found in John 5.19. John says, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And in John 12.49, Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Do you see why Jesus rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan? Peter's rebuke was was deemed satanic by Jesus because it was contrary to the concerns of God. Jesus was not trying to hurt Peter's feelings. He he wasn't trying to give him a complex by, by saying, get behind me, Satan. He was saying Peter's plans were of the devil. Why were they of the devil? Because they were an attempt to derail the plan of God, to redeem and restore what had been broken by sin. So because Jesus modeled dependency on his heavenly Father, he didn't have to wonder for one second whether Peter's plan might be a valid alternative. An independent, free-thinking king might have been wooed by Peter's suggestion, but not King Jesus. His dependence on his heavenly Father assured him it was the right plan. So since we've got a king who models dependence, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that this same king commands dependence on God for all who desire to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is our second point, the king who commands dependence. You know, we might be led to think that cherishing independence is a modern issue, but we only need to hear from Jesus to know that this desire for independence has been around for much longer. As a matter of fact, a certain kind of independence is woven into the human condition as a result of the fall. Adam and Eve had grown bored with depending on God and wanted to be independent and autonomous. 
Proverbs 1, 7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Desiring wisdom, which they could have received from their dependence on the Lord, Adam and Eve took matters into their own hands, revealing that they desired independence from God above all. So looking at some commentary on Genesis 2 and 3, I came across what I think is a a striking note that, that helps me and hopefully helps you see why Jesus commands that citizens of the kingdom of God are to be dependent on God. Regarding Adam and Eve's decision, the commentator said this, experience gained by fearing the Lord is wisdom. Experience gained by fearing the Lord is wisdom. While experience that is gained by disobeying God is slavery. Let me read that one more time. Experience gained by fearing the Lord is wisdom, while that gained by disobeying God is slavery. Isn't that an interesting thought? Independence from God is slavery. In declaring personal independence, we deceive ourselves by by thinking we are free, yet we are slaves to sin and the devil. Knowing the the independent, leaning hearts of his audience, Jesus addressed them with the following command. Look at verse 34. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Kings can command their subjects do anything they want them to. Furthermore, kings are not required to have done what they are commanding in order for them to command it. And that's what makes Jesus' command here in verse 34 so unique. Jesus was not asking anything of the crowd that he was not going to do himself. As a matter of fact, the reason it would be possible for them to do what he was commanding them to do is because Jesus was going to set the example by denying himself and taking up his cross. So the command Jesus had given those who were in the crowd was to deny themselves and take up their cross. The warning, if they didn't do what he had called them to do, was that they would lose their eternal life. Why? Because it is not possible for us to save ourselves. Jesus says as much in verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will what? Lose it. But here's the good news of the gospel. Listen to Jesus. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Society tells us the law of the jungle is self-preservation. Two mantras of humanity are might makes right and history is written by the victors. We want to rewrite what Jesus said to, for whoever wants to save their life must save it themselves. Some of you uh, might be familiar with the Matt Damon ad campaign that 
that came out a little while back. It might have been uh, from the Super Bowl. Uh, but he, he makes this, this bold proclamation in, in the ad where he says, fortune favors the brave. Have y'all seen that? Y'all, y'all know that? This is not some clever slogan recently crafted by an ad agency in, in Madison, on Madison Avenue. No, this is an ancient Latin proverb that is thousands of years old. But whatever the mantra, whether might makes right, history is written by the victors, or fortune favors the brave, whatever the mantra, Jesus stands against them all saying, if you want to be counted among those that he knows and calls friends, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. So how do we deny ourselves and take up our cross? Reflecting on verse 34, Matthew Henry, the the old English minister who served in the 16 and 1700s, he said the answer was not self-reliance. Regarding the disciple of Jesus, Henry wrote this, Let him not pretend to be his own physician, but renounce all confidence in himself and his own righteousness and strength. And let him take up his cross, conforming himself to the pattern of a crucified Jesus and accommodating himself to the will of God in all the afflictions he lies under. Henry would go on to say, those that will be Christ patients must go to him, converse with him, receive instruction and reproof from him as those did that followed him and must resolve they will never forsake him. In the few remaining verses of the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus helps those wrestling with whether they should obey him by by asking some some diagnostic questions to to give us a clearer glimpse of this upside-down kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus asks, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Our culture says, what could be wrong with gaining the whole world? And listen, I don't think this is a teaching against riches. There are plenty of those in Scripture, but I don't think this is one. I think what we need to focus on here is the second half of this verse. Jesus answers, That even in gaining the whole world, you won't be any closer to forgiveness of your sin and fellowship with God if you are separated from Christ. Though you might own it all, if you haven't submitted your life to Christ, you have nothing. It has been said that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Think about that. That is kingdom of God math. To most, that is antithetical. Some may say Jesus plus nothing equals only Jesus, and for many, that is a proposition they're not willing to go for. It's just too high a cost for them to check their autonomy at the door and settle, in their words, for Jesus. The obvious answer to Jesus' question in verse 36 is that it is no good at all to gain the whole world If in doing so, you're going to forfeit your soul. As with verse 36, Jesus is asking another incredibly important question in verse 37 that that every one of us must answer, either now 
or on the day of judgment. And it's better to, to understand the word soul in 36 and 37 as life. I think it helps us make more sense of this. So verse 37, or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul or, or for their life? In other words, how much does eternal life cost? How much is redemption in thinking about this exchange that Jesus was asking those in the crowd to think about, I was reminded of, of going with my grandmother as a, a little boy to the IGA in Renz, Georgia. This is not the only IGA in the world down here, right? It's a good one. It's a real good one. But there's one in Renz, Georgia. And I would often go with my grandmother when I was visiting her. And usually you walk out of the grocery store with your arms full, right? But every time I would go with my grandmother, we would walk into the grocery store with our arms full, we would take in one liter glass Coke bottles, right? They were empty, so why would we do that? Well, these bottles were worth cold, hard cash, and not much of it. I mean, just maybe a nickel, right, for all the ones that we would take in there. She'd turn in the bottles, and in exchange, get a little bit of money back. And in my little, young, unsophisticated mind, I would wonder why in the world would anyone pay for an empty bottle? There is no good thing in that bottle, right? The, the delicious Coke is long gone, and it's just an empty container. You see, I didn't see the worth of an empty vessel, but the one who could redeem the bottle did. They knew that bottle could be cleaned up and filled up and put back out for service. Friends, as with all analogies, the wheels eventually fall off, and it's true in this situation as well. The answer to Jesus' question is that no one can give anything in exchange for eternal life. Our lives, as empty as they are without Christ, are only seen as valuable by our Creator. He alone can redeem our empty lives, and He did that by laying down His life. And though there is nothing we can do to earn eternal life, Jesus paid the ultimate price so that our empty lives could be exchanged for lives that are complete in Him, and lives that are renewed for an eternity with their Maker. Is it too much for Him to ask for our dependence upon Him in order to experience that eternal life? So here's the bottom line Jesus was revealing to His crowd Independence from God leads to eternal death and separation from God, while wholly depending on God in and through devotion to Jesus it leads to eternal life and fellowship with God. So that is the gospel in a nutshell. Friends, God has called us to decide between the world's gospel, which says personal independence is to be desired above all, or the genuine gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which says true freedom True independence can only be found by following Jesus and relying on Him. That's why Jesus' words at the end of this passage in verse 38 are so confronting. Listen to what Jesus says. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. To hear Jesus say that the world could be described back then as, as this adulterous and sinful generation, it reminds us that what we are seeing in our day and age is really nothing new. 
But the point is not whether society is the same or has gotten worse. The point is, how do you respond to Jesus? In the language that Jesus used at the beginning of this passage, who do you say that I am? If we say that he is the Messiah, the Christ, we will deny ourselves. We'll take up our cross. We will follow him. Friends, we have a decision to make. Will we be dependent upon God and bold in our declaration of of unashamedly following Jesus? Or will we, in our quest for independence, be ashamed of Jesus? Jesus' words of warning are, are foreshadowing Jesus' judgment of the world. As much as this is a warning, it's an invitation An invitation to embrace something now that will become abundantly clear when Jesus returns. And this is what we are to embrace. There is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of in Jesus Christ. As we close, chapter 9, verse 1 reminds us that the kingdom of God is not something that is only off in the distant future. No, it is now. Look at verse 1. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. If we think that the kingdom of God is something only off in the distance with Jesus' return, we miss Jesus' point in Mark 9.1. Whether Jesus was talking about the the transfiguration, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or some combination of these events, Jesus' point was that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was now. So what does that mean for us? Well, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the kingdom of God has come with power, and that has a significant impact on our lives. In following Jesus, we are called to live in that power, that power which equips us and enables us to participate in the the Great Commission, right? Making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. To the world, dependence seems weak and powerless, but we know this. Since the kingdom of God has come with power, those who are of the kingdom and are dependent upon upon God through Christ, we live in, through, and by that power. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this power that your Son declared. We thank you that In his words, some who were standing there would see it before their death. And that tells us that your kingdom has come. We know that we are not only waiting on Jesus' return to experience and realize the power of your kingdom. We realize that it is amongst us now, most notably through the indwelling and infilling of your spirit. Father, for those who are here this morning who have taken that step of obedience and placed their faith in Christ Jesus and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would 
sense this power. I pray that as we go out this week, that we would be reminded again and again and again that we are living in the power of the kingdom of God. And that gives us a certain boldness that we cannot come up with on our own. It gives us a a certain confidence in your Son, knowing what He has done and knowing what He will do in His return. We pray that that day would come quickly. We long to see your Son. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful, to encourage others around us. That we would delight in sharing this good news of King Jesus with the lost. Father, I I pray that if if there's anyone here this morning who in this moment, they, they know that they have never placed their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. I pray that they would do that right now. I pray today would be the day that they can experience this same power that Jesus was talking about. Father, we give you thanks for this table that is before us. It is a reminder of what your son has done. And in observing it, we do remember his great sacrifice. And so it's in his name that we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.